Hello, I'm Tristan Miller, and you're listening to Positive and Negative, a podcast about the intersectionality between mental health and the arts. Today on the program, we have actor, writer, musician, and motion capture pioneer Ahmed Best. He speaks about his experience with depression and how other people's opinions can impact your mental health. Here he is talking about the stigma of dealing with depression. We, we talk about it in this very like tertiary, it could never happen to me, almost patronizing way. Uh-huh. And um, that's unfair. It's unfair to the, the person and it's unfair to the situation the person is going through. And I think we need to start having this conversation in a real way that doesn't stigmatize it, you know, because there's been a point in everyone's life where they felt like they were weren't enough, where they felt like they were useless. Mm -hmm. Everybody has thought this. Like, why? What am I even doing here? You know, some people can go through that thought. You know, some people can just go, what am I doing here? Ah, fuck it. And move on. Yeah. Some (laughs) people can't. You know, some people can't and they're brought to extremes and I was brought to an extreme and and, um, I had my wake up moment in that extreme, which helped me continue. Mm -hmm. But to be there at the point at the time going, you know what, this is it. This podcast is made possible by your support over at Patreon.com and go to Patreon.com slash Tristan J. Miller to support us there. You receive exclusive content for both this and two other podcasts, as well as a very nice thank you note from me. You can follow us at Twitter at pauseandnegpod if you want to communicate about this episode or any of the other episodes we have available to you. Alright, let's get to this interview. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, My pleasure. You're from this city, right? From New York City, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You live here. Um, And you were growing up, I would imagine, in the 80s. What was that like? Yeah, you know, I grew up in in the 70s and 80s in New York City. And um, it was great it was dangerous it's a lot it's a lot different now than it is than it was back then. yeah <laughs> but um new york was this really interesting place of just a lot of diversity um a lot of people were coming to new york to try to find it you know what i mean to try to find their art to try to yeah. find their identity and it was it was affordable back then to do that and i remember my mom my mom is an artist and my mom had uh, a studio with uh, a bunch of people that she went to college with. My mom went to FIT, and she had a studio in Soho. Um, and Soho was like just heroin addicts and graffiti. It was just awful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they had these like enormous loft spaces where artists would just gather and and you know form these collectives and make stuff. And so I remember being a kid on the streets mm-hmm. of Soho, like jumping over heroin addicts. But being in these like beautiful love spaces where a lot of art was happening, and I didn't know anything from anything, 
but um, you know Andy Warhol mm. and uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat and like all of those guys were around that neighborhood uh, at those times and so you know we would see them on the street every once in a while like especially Basquiat like when Basquiat was just getting yeah. his shine you know mm-hmm. we would like uh, it would be like Basquiat sightings and I didn't know who Basquiat was but you know all the, sure. the artists who my mom knew and, and my, my father knew they were just like oh there's Basquiat and then he would like disappear <laughs> you know and then so, much uh, later when yeah. I was an adult I was like oh that's who Keith Herring is oh that's who Andy Warhol is oh that's Basquiat like, you know what I'm saying like all of that time that's, in New that's York amazing. you yeah. kid, like you don't know who these people are yeah but it was crazy <laughs> New York was crazy um, and you know New York still has this you can still find your niche right and you can still find mm-hmm. that that corner of yourself like New York is still this place where people are like look you're doing something. Keep doing it. Yeah. You know? You can be weird yeah. and like and people will be like, look, that shit was weird, but keep doing it. There's something in there. There's a you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so art was always around growing up then. Always. With you. Always. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Art, music. Um, everybody in my family is either an artist or an entrepreneur. Yeah. And you were in a band for a while, right? You, did, you recorded a couple albums. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. Music is my first love. And um, I, I went to Manhattan School of Music. And then I, and I, I was in a bunch of bands. But yeah, I co- recorded a couple records on Atlantic Records. And, you know, I was a rapper for a minute. Yeah? <laughs> that's that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, why the switch over to acting then? I had always done both at the same time, um, and mm-hmm. music kind of was taken off a little bit faster than the acting was. Mm-hmm. And there were just a lot of opportunities in the '90s to make music. You know, there were a lot of independent record labels yeah. popping up, and you know, most of my friends were musicians, so you know, we had time. We were broke, and we would just put together bands and we would play, and then you know. The 90s, there was so much money around that people were getting signed left and right. And so the band, one of the bands I was with called The Jazz Hole got signed. And um, and so that's when I jumped headfirst into the music business. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, getting a record deal isn't Shangri-La. Like once you get a record deal, you realize how the business works. And it's very difficult to like keep a Mm -hmm. record deal. And then, you know, we were on a a small label, which was a subsidized label of Atlantic Records. And the president Mm -hmm. of our label embezzled all the Atlantic Records money and, like, disappeared. And we were just like, oh, my God. Like, how we, we had no tour support. We had, you know, no money in the bank to do anything. There were a lot of people in the band. So, um, Big Atlantic took us on, but we couldn't survive. It was just like us and like Genesis, <laughs> you know what I mean? And they were like focused more <laughs> on those, those guys than they were us. Yeah. Oh boy, that's rough, man. That's rough. Yeah, it was tough. It was tough. Um, 
And you do a podcast now that I listen to called Afrofuturist Podcast. Yeah, yeah. The Afrofuturist yeah. Podcast, um, I started maybe about two and a half years ago. And yeah. it was right at this point where Afrofuturism was reaching um, really the mainstream media as far mm-hmm. as attention goes. Like yeah. People don't really understand Afrofuturism mm-hmm. yet, but... When the Black Panther movie came out, everybody was like, oh, yeah, Afrofuturism, you know? But it's been around for quite <laughs> mm-hmm. a long time, Afrofuturism. And, you know, if you have read any of the Octavia Butler books or um, if, you, if you're if you a fan of just this idea that this the ancient civilizations in Africa had all of this information and all of this acumen and all of this expertise... And then, you know, Europe, Europeans from, you know, the Roman Empire and Greece, they would travel to Africa, get all of this information and bring it back up north. Right. As well as mm-hmm. um, Africans going into Europe and either like starting wars and conquering or intermingling with Europeans, you know, the Moors mm-hmm. and the Nubians, you know, in, in Spain and in Italy they influenced a lot of culture in Europe and that and that and the Europeans took on that culture and then, you know, amalgamated it into their societies. But most of the sciences and a lot most of the technologies started in ancient Africa and in these ancient civilizations. Mm-hmm. Civilizations like Egypt, civilizations like the Malian Empire, the Benin Empire, the Abyssinian Empire. And um you know, metallurgy, mathematics, astronomy, all of these things started in um, Africa. So what Afrofuturism is, is it's an ancestral um, look back to um, where speculative fiction and science and science fiction kind of began and branch out from there, right? So it's this idea mm-hmm. that the futurist movement in the 20s in Italy and in Europe that wasn't really the first futurist movement. And we, we tend to think that futurism began there, right? Like in Europe with the Italians and then boom, World's Fair and then flying cars and then Jetsons. Mm-hmm. And, but it's a much older tradition. And that's what Afrofuturism yeah. really kind of talks about. Yeah, that's, it's really good. It's an excellent podcast. Yeah, I think you, you do a very good job with it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you you clearly have like an interest in technology and speculative fiction and when you were um working on star wars were you very excited about the new technology you were working with yeah i mean honestly i didn't really know what was going to happen until i got to my uh screen test right and then sure at the screen test that's when i put on what's now commonly known as a motion capture suit and it had the optical Mm -hmm. you know infrared optical uh trackers on it and everything and then um i was i was looking at this stuff and at the time you know this was like 1997 so computers were still like measured in depth Today, yep. Like now, it's just oh, screen size is sixteen inches. No, these computers were like ten feet deep. You know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, I would see all of these just like computers, just like hard drives piled in like these deep screens. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I was like, what is going on? It looked like a bunch of like, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, rocket scientists behind this thing. And when I finally saw what's, you know, now called a point cloud, which is where all the trackers on the suit um, are extrapolated and put into um, the computer simulation. When I saw that and I saw these dots on the screen move like me that's when i realized yeah. oh this is going to be something special like this is this is something yeah. really really special and i was in i, I loved it i've always been a, a fan of science and i always loved computers you know i was in the computer since i was a, a very small since the commodore 64 so i always like you know had technology and art as my thing you know even in high school i was very mm -hmm. big with computer music and um, programming songs and programming beats and you know I was working on Macs and Apple since Apple started so I, I had always been mm -hmm. kind of close to it and this you know Jar Jar was like perfect for me you were kind of like discovered because you were in Stomp and then you got the offer right? yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and you you weren't like represented by any any agency how did that feel as like a young person? very scary you know, it was very scary. Yeah. I was just thrust into this, like, giant world, and I just didn't know how to navigate it. And thankfully, I had people in my life who could be like, okay, go here, go there. But it's a, it's a, it's a difficult time because everybody wants a piece of it. So you yeah. don't know who to trust or, you know, when to trust them. So I really leaned heavily on, you know, a lot of my relationships in the music industry you know i had mm -hmm. friends who were managers and, and lawyers in the music industry and they helped me hammer out whatever deal i could get at the time which wasn't great because <laughs> i was you know brand new i was unknown nobody you know even mm -hmm. i was a kid you know and the technology was new the process was new um, I, I think no one but George Lucas really knew how um, ch how just history changing it was going to be. Um, but I didn't really have yeah. a leg to stand on, you know what I mean? I was just so brand new. I assume you were a fan of Star Wars growing up, being a oh, fan of technology yeah. and it was, art. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the first movie I saw. Yeah. How yeah. Ex like So I would assume you were very, very excited about it. I was over the moon. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. It was one of those like life-changing things that yeah. almost never happens to anyone, you know. And yeah. um, here I am, plucked pretty much off the stomp stage, smack dab into this mm -hmm. brand new world, brand new universe, and I just was like, you know, at at the biggest at the biggest stage you know, in movies, especially at that time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. Yeah, it seems also like you you were never discouraged from pursuing art. Were your parents, like, really supportive of you the whole time? Yeah, I mean... Because they're both artists, you said. Yeah, when I... When, um, because they're artists, they didn't really want me to have an artist's life because they know how tough it is, you know. And my mm -hmm. father, my father's a cinematographer, um, but he had mm -hmm. he had three kids, so he moved into TV. So he he's, he's mm -hmm. he was a cameraman for ABC for you know all his career pretty much. 
So um, even though it was an art profession, there was um, a, an incredible amount of stability to his job. And that's what he wanted. He wanted us to have stability. And, you know, me and my brother and my sister, we all decided to be artists. And we <laughs> decided not to have that stability at all. <laughs> So, sure. you know, my parents were just like, yeah, you guys can go and do your thing and express yourself. But they were worried, you know, just like any parent would be when you decide to take on a profession that's difficult. So, um, yeah. yeah, they they were supportive to an extent. You know, I, I there were a couple mm-hmm. of instances where they were just like, you, you don't want to be a lawyer? And I was like, yeah, nah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And you do a, you do a lot of different uh, creative like where do you think that comes from that ability to do music and do acting and and yeah and playing well, with like the computers and stuff like yeah well I think it's a couple of things one I'm just a curious yeah. person mm-hmm. I I like learning and I like finding out about things and I like seeing how things work and I like seeing how people do their stuff you know. So every mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. I see something that's interesting, I, I'm drawn to it. I'm just like, well, how do you do that? What is that? What is that about? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've always been a deconstructor. And mm-hmm. I like finding complex things and breaking them down to its simplest form um, in a way that I can understand it. Uh, so whenever mm-hmm. I'm faced with something that appears to be complex, I always ask myself, why is it so tough? Why is it so complex? And can I make this easier? You know, can I make it so I understand it? Um, and mm-hmm. I, I approach everything like that. So with music, um, you know, for me, it was about what are the building blocks to music? Like, how does music work? And once I figured out how music worked, then all the other stuff is just like muscle memory. You know, instruments are just muscle memory. I know what a scale does. I know where chord progressions go. You know what I mean? And I know what Mm -hmm. these notes are. Now that I know all of that stuff, now I just got to work the muscles, you know? And same Mm -hmm. thing, same thing with the computers, you know, same thing with programming Mm -hmm. and coding. It's like, here is a thing that I want to yeah. do. Here is a block of code that does that thing. Let me just do that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And I try, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I try not to think too hard yeah. about it because you know we tend to we tend to overanalyze. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Do you find yourself like an overanalytic person and kind of like a, a heady person that way? My wife does. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I quite like thinking, you know, I I, I think a lot, (laughs) I think a lot, I think often, um, there are a Mm -hmm. lot of times where I'm just sitting by myself, just thinking and I look weird. Um, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, I don't overanalyze to the point of not making sense, right? I don't look for an analysis that sparks more hypothesis. I usually try to and analyze till I get to the thing, till I get to the core of the thing. 
And once I think I got okay. it, I'll hold I'll hold on to the theory until it's changed or until I change. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you don't you don't feel anxious when you're overanalyzing anything. No, no, like I, I just feel you know, it's it's kind of along the deconstructor line of things, you know. I feel yeah. like I'm just pulling away the layers, I'm pulling away the facade to get to the true intentions, mm-hmm. you know. It that's what mm-hmm. I think being an artist and being an actor and being a director and a writer is. It's like, all right, what's the real mm-hmm. reason why we're doing this thing? Why do we behave this way? Yeah. Really? You know, and then if you're a writer, you can find that core behavior and then just start putting masks over it, right? And you yeah. do that for every character. You find the character, you find that intention, you know, you find the reason why they're doing all of this stuff emotionally, like what happened to them. And then you start putting masks over it, and that's where you find your story, you know? And then the story is really yeah. about revealing taking away those layers taking away those masks until you get to that one part in your story where it's just like oh this is it you know this is the core mm-hmm. and that's what that's what makes it exciting how did you approach that with uh, Jar Jar who's like a, an alien and like I mean he's very human because you know as because you're a human's playing him but like how did you go about that with Jar Jar I found um, who I was in the character who, who I, mm-hmm. what my core belief was in this world with these people. And mm-hmm. for me, the reason why Jar Jar did everything he did was mm-hmm. um, his core belief was, I will never let you down. I'm not the smartest, I'm not the strongest, I'm not the fastest, I'm not a Jedi, I don't have any of this stuff. But mm-hmm. if you ask me to do a thing, I am going to do that thing. And I'm not going to let mm-hmm. you down. You know, I will not let you down. So that's that's the thing that drove the character for me. Which is why, you know, yeah. when it's just like General Binks at the end of the movie... You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jar Jar didn't know anything about being a general, about being in a war, or, yeah. you know, fighting battles or anything. But he was like, look, mm-hmm. my people need me, and I'm not going to let you down. So, you know, it seems it's very actory, you know, <laughs> that yeah. kind of yeah, thinking. Yeah. But, you know, it helped mm-hmm. me. It helped me, and it defined my actions and defined my character. Um, in the movie and it, and it was good because it's almost childlike you know that idea you know you don't want to disappoint your parents you want them to think the yeah. best of you you know what I mean and um, the hardest thing about being a kid is you're trapped in this little body and you're just trying to do your best and you have all of these big people and all of these you know adults who claim they know more than you telling you to do things and you're just like I don't get it like all I want to do is do my best and I don't want to disappoint my parents so it was easy mm-hmm. easier for me to get into the child body of Jar Jar thinking I don't want to disappoint you you know yeah and do you think that was like a metatextual thing with being on this huge project of like not wanting to d- disappoint George Lucas <laughs> absolutely you know I mean people from where I'm from, you know, I'm from the South Bronx, like these, 
opportunities mm -hmm. like this, the way it happened to me, doesn't come along, you know, a lot. Mm -hmm. So I, um, you know, J-Lo is from up the block for me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like it's the me and J-Lo yeah. from El Bronx, you know? <laughs> Cardi B, maybe. <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, opportunities like this don't come around too much. And I was really trying not to get fired, like straight up. I was trying not to get fired. So, you know, mm -hmm. when these opportunities present themselves, uh, um, I was going to do my best and I was going to throw myself into this thing um, as as much and as hard as I possibly could, you know, and I wasn't going to mm -hmm. ask too many questions. I was going to enjoy the process, keep an open mind and learn. And if mm -hmm. I had a suggestion, I would make that suggestion and, you know, have George steer the ship. But that's his job. His, you know, those movies are mm -hmm. his vision. It's his words. And, uh, you know, my job as an actor in the movies was to make his vision real. And to give yeah. everything that he needed for his vision and leave it all out there, um, you know, on the screen. And if I felt mm -hmm. I could enhance his vision in a way that, that um, he wasn't seeing because he didn't know me, I felt like I'm going to do that. And, you know, he mm -hmm. was so open to the collaboration and so generous with his time. Like he was, he was, he was amazing. Did that make it harder when the audience response happened? Yeah, I mean, the hardest part about it was we did a lot of great work. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And if you watch The Phantom Menace, every technique in movie history till now is in that movie. Mm -hmm. Every single one. Yeah. And, you know the ubiquity of CGI in movies did not exist before Phantom Menace. You know, an actor mm -hmm. playing a CGI character, a main character, didn't exist before the Phantom Menace. So we were yeah. using technical as well as, um, as well as computer-generated film techniques creating a brand new industry in film in that movie mm -hmm. and we kind of all knew it and we were in this bubble watching all of this happen going wow we're doing something that's never been done before and everybody talks about doing something that's never been done before so um yeah. when the the audience response came out and it wasn't favorable all of us were kind of shell-shocked we were we were taken yeah. back by it you know because we were in the bubble doing the work how does it feel now knowing that like there's a whole younger generation like that I'm a part of that it the reaction was the one that was intended is that yeah soften you the know blow? kind of you know George knew that he you know he was like 20 years yeah. from now this is going to be different and it's because he went through it before um so yeah. he knew that that was going to happen it's it, you know it took me a while to actually believe that uh, opinions have changed. And when I I went to uh, Star Wars Celebration earlier this mm -hmm. year, that was like the thing that kind of changed my mind about it. And all of those kids who loved Jar Jar when they were kids 
are now adults, you know, 20 years later. Yeah. And um, they have a very close connection to him because they identified with him being a kid. You yeah. Know? And it's just like you have all these people who know all this stuff about you and they're telling you to do things. And kids, like, mm-hmm. they, they saw that, you know, and they saw that mm-hmm. wonder of Jar Jar. So now that they're adults, they were, you know, I get a lot of response. Like, you know, I felt like that was me as a kid. And I was like, oh, man, I felt like that was me as a kid, too. <laughs> so <laughs> it does soften the blow. It does. Um, industry-wise, we haven't gotten there yet. You know, sure. Industry-wise, we haven't. We don't in the industry. We don't recognize the contribution of the Phantom Menace to movie history enough. Yeah. You know, it's still yeah. looked on as some kind of a failure, which I don't understand. In the interim between the two points, between like the the last twenty years, you've been facing a lot of flack, and mm-hmm. how did that start manifesting, and how did that like impact your life on a day to day? Um, it impacted it tremendously, you know, and and um, right now I'm writing a one-man show about this because um, yeah. a lot of times uh, everyone thinks that you can just say things to people and it won't affect them for some reason, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, for some reason people are just, they they don't see what they're saying as detrimental because they don't ever have to meet me. You know what I mean? They don't have mm-hmm. to deal with mm-hmm. me on a daily basis. It's easy to fire out a very hateful, you know, social media post on pick your medium and never have to actually deal with the person face to face. Yeah. So nobody really knew how um damaging that was to me emotionally you know to, to how yeah. I felt to my psyche you know and they didn't see you know the self-confidence and and you know all of that stuff just like almost disappeared you know I, mm-hmm. I, I was I really started doubting myself I really started doubting my ability to actually do this work and all the things that I've learned that brought me to that place, it, it just seemed to just go away, you know? And it took me a while to realize that, you know, I'm actually really good at what I do. You know, I'm good at my <laughs> job. I'm, I'm, I, I do my job and I, did my, and I did my job well, especially in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Like, I did my job. I did the job that I was asked to do. And no one really understands the, the filmmaking process in depth. You know, I remember having a conversation mm-hmm. with Liam Neeson and he was talking about Schindler's List. And, you know, that last mm-hmm. scene in Schindler's List where he breaks down. And, you know, the critics had a field day with Liam Neeson over that joint, you know. They had a field day. They were like, Schindler's List was great, um, and but that one scene. And Liam was just like, what the fuck? <laughs> he was like, why is everybody blaming <laughs> me for this scene? It's like, Steven Spielberg yeah. is the director. This is the scene. This is the take he chose. 
You know, and everybody's like, oh, yeah. Liam Neeson sucked in that last scene. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. He's like, I didn't yeah. fucking, yeah, yeah, I yeah. didn't do this, you know? So people don't yeah. understand, <laughs> people understand the process. You know, film is a director's medium, yeah. and the director gets to choose what goes on the screen. But people go after the actors, and, and um, it's a bit mm-hmm. unfair. You know, it's a bit unfair. When you were dealing with that, did you, like, go through any therapy, or were you just I didn't, through? no. You know, I should have. <laughs> I should have. <laughs> sure. But, you know, when you're in it, when you're in it, stuff like that you just don't really think about. And, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. it's very easy to dismiss the fact that you don't think about it you know what i'm saying everybody's like well how can mm-hmm. you not think about it you're depressed go get therapy and it's like mm-hmm. you know what <laughs> it's difficult to even recognize the fact that you have depression <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah it, yeah it's yeah. not it's not easy it's not easy to even accept the fact like you wake up one day and you're like and it's usually afterwards you know you're just like oh snap yeah I was really in it, you know? I was mm-hmm. really depressed. So yeah. in the moment when you, the, when you're like, go get therapy, you're like you don't believe that you're in it. Yeah. Yeah. Had you ever dealt with any of that kind of emotions before in your life? You know, not to that extent, no. Um, I had always been uh and, and you know also I have to say not that I could recognize, because it, it, it probably is the mm. case. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, in a lot of the black community in America, we're not encouraged to seek therapy in popular culture, right? It's changing mm-hmm. now. You know, it's changing yeah. now. Now therapy is a lot more acceptable. And um, I think black people specifically should seek therapy. There is a lot of stuff that we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis just being here. And, you know, the fact that racism and discrimination, um, we are always navigating racism and discrimination on a daily basis. And that shit is heavy, you know. Mm-hmm. But there's a, there's a bit of uh, the culture that just says, you know, suck it up, be a man, and go through the next day. You know what I mean? There's this mm-hmm. idea that, you know, your ancestors survived slavery, and you sad because you went a movie? Get over it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, yeah. honestly, honestly, their um, levels, and, and it's all relative, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. a lot of the times, that's mm-hmm. what I told myself. A lot of times, I was just like, you know what, suck it up. It's a movie, but um, mm-hmm. that's a that's really uh, a dangerous thing to do. It's a dangerous yeah. thing to tell yourself because that feeling, that sadness, that depression, that that's a real circumstance, regardless of where it came from. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So you do have to deal with that. It got to a point where you considered jumping off a bridge, right? Yeah, um, yeah, and I hadn't talked about this for a very, very long time, and it's still difficult to talk about, but um, I feel like I have to start talking about this now, because it happens to Mm -hmm. more people 
than we know. And since I started speaking about this, since I started telling this story, I've gotten a lot of people who pull me aside and very quietly go, yeah, it happened to me too. And it's, and, and it's more people than I could have ever thought. And there's this idea that because you have what appears to be a fortunate life, there is nothing for you to want to do this for, right? Yeah. What really struck me hard was when Anthony Bourdain committed suicide. Yeah. And um, that's what really made me start talking about this because Bourdain committed suicide and I loved Anthony Bourdain. You know, I loved his book, Kitchen Confidential. I loved his show. I loved the fact that he was culturally communicating and sharing all of this stuff with the world through his art. Um, And -hmm. I was just a really, really huge fan. And then when he committed suicide I was like everybody was saying how could he do it I don't understand he had everything he was traveling around the world mm-hmm. he was eating great food what's your what, what was what is your problem and I thought to myself <laughs> I know I know how he could have yeah I know exactly how yeah. he could um and I just felt like we hear this stuff and and, and you know we we talk about it in this very like tertiary it could never happen to me almost patronizing way uh-huh. and um that's unfair it's unfair to the the person and it's unfair to the situation the person is going through and i think we mm-hmm. need to start having this conversation in a real way that doesn't stigmatize it you know because there's been a point in everyone's life where they felt like they were weren't enough where they felt like they were useless Mm -hmm. everybody has thought this like why what am i even doing here you know some people can go through that thought you know some people can just go what am i doing here ah fuck it and move on yeah (laughs) some people can't you know, yeah. some people can't and they're brought to extremes and I was brought to an extreme and, and um, I had my wake up moment in that extreme, which helped me continue. Mm-hmm. But yeah. to be there at the point at the time going, you know what, this is it. That's um, to get to get to that place emotionally, you know is is a very tough place to get to and there's a lot of stuff going on that needs to be addressed and needs to be talked about and when you get there you feel alone that's really the reason why you're doing it because you feel all alone mm-hmm. you feel like that and nobody will be able to understand you you know the mm-hmm. fact that Man, you're in a big movie. What are you so sad about? Is one of the things that pushes you to feel alone, right? Because then you start spinning in your head mm-hmm. and you start believing that, you know. And yeah. then you're like, well, nobody's gonna get it. So, and I'm, I'm almost positive that that's what Anthony Bourdain was thinking, you know. 
He was probably like, mm-hmm. nobody's going to really accept the fact that I'm feeling this way because I'm Anthony Bourdain and I, you know, I started mm-hmm. doing jujitsu and I have this book and I'm famous. <laughs> and he's just like, fuck it. I, I don't need anybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm alone yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah, You know? So I think, you yeah. know, as far as that, everyone is starting to talk about wellness. You know, what is wellness? Yeah. And... um wellness is not a state of being in my opinion Mm -hmm. i think wellness is the ability to have this conversation and be open and honest and vulnerable and talk to people um who have empathy for this position and really find a way to in your bones make them feel like they're not alone how did you recover from that? You seem to be doing better, which I, I'm glad for. Yeah, I mean, um, it's a challenge, you know? It's a challenge yeah. that doesn't really go away completely. It's always there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I tell you, a big part of it was my son, you know, having yeah. having my son and... Um, knowing that, knowing that he's so very vital and important to me, and he gives me something to fight for, you know, he gives me something to fight for every day, and I'll never leave him. I'll never leave him. Um, so that's a a wonderful anchor, and. Imagining yeah. never having my son was one of the reasons I had to step off the bridge and move on, mm-hmm. you know, because I've always yeah. wanted to have a son like I have, you yeah. know, so that is just so incredibly valuable to me. And, and I would never, ever try to trade that value. It, it's too much, too much. Mm-hmm. It means too much. Yeah. Um, do you do anything now to like actively like you mentioned you don't really do therapy but do you do anything else now actively to oh I do kind therapy. of persuade <laughs> oh you do it now okay yeah. great yeah 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 oh yeah right on yeah yeah I do therapy um, I, I, I talk to um, a lot of people who have shared yeah. similar experiences I've always been a martial artist. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always believed in martial arts. It's the closest thing I have to religion. And that helps me mm-hmm. a lot. Like martial arts is yeah. really, that's the bulk of my therapy, martial arts. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm done with the stigma of, um, I have to look like I have it all together. I'm kind of done with that. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I don't think any human being does. I don't even know what that means. Got it all together. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Everybody needs help. You know what I'm saying? And I think Mm -hmm. this this idea that, you know, and, and I think it's very American, this idea that all you need to do is lock yourself in a room with a typewriter and in, you know, 10 months you have the perfect novel. That is 100% bullshit. Nobody does this alone. Nobody. Nobody does anything Mm -hmm. alone. No one. I don't care how popular or 
famous or intelligent you are, you have a bunch of people helping you out. There's this book that's yep. coming out called We Are Stephen Hawking, right? And I don't mm-hmm. think it's out. It might be out. But there's this book coming out called We Are Stephen Hawking, right? And it talks about the team behind Stephen mm-hmm. Hawking. Like, we think about Stephen Hawking as this lone physicist in his chair, you know, thinking about other worlds and other dimensions. And he is. But he mm-hmm. also has a team of people surrounding him that he can go, hey, how about this idea? And then they go figure it out. Yeah. And then they come back to him yeah. and they go, Stephen, what do you think? And he goes, well, this is, you know, what I think. And then they go away and they figure it out again. Like, there's all of these yeah, people yeah. behind the machine of Stephen Hawking. And, you know, mm-hmm. unfortunately, what we do as a society is we put the guy up there. You know, it's like, this yeah. guy is the smartest guy to ever be a guy. And You know what I'm saying? Like, we think about all this shit <laughs> like that. Yeah. He doesn't do it alone, you know? Yeah. And so a lot of the times... We, as you know, mortal men and women, we go, Well, we have to get through this alone. Nobody yeah. gets through it alone. No one, no one. We need each other. Mm-hmm. We're human beings, we're herd animals, we're pack animals. We need a pack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Nobody yeah. does this shit alone. Yeah, how, um, how's your experience been with therapy, if you don't mind me asking? You have to find the right person. Yeah. Because it's been, you know, up and down, hot and cold. Um, mm-hmm. Some people I agree with, some people I don't. But you have mm-hmm. to find the right person. And, you know, it's generally been positive. Anytime you can yeah. sit and talk about how you feel with somebody who is just willing to listen is great. Yeah. You know, it's really good to just have that somebody who is impartial that is not someone you're romantically involved with. <laughs> you know, that helps and, a lot. And that doesn't know your little idiosyncrasies on how you can hide your true feelings. Mm-hmm. Anytime you get yeah. to do that, it's positive. You know, it's positive. So, yeah. uh, you know, I've always liked it. I've always dug it. Mm. Yeah. Have you um, ever done any medication to counteract? No, I haven't. No? Um, thankfully, it's... I yeah. have never gotten to that point where I've needed medication. Sure. Um, I would, I am not knocking medication at all. You know, yeah. if you have a chemical imbalance in your brain and you need mm-hmm. the medication to rebalance your brain, do it. Mm. Do it. It's important mm-hmm. to do. Um, I've always yeah. found. Um, and this is going to sound a bit new agey, but I've always been a sure. meditator. Yeah, I do you know? it every day. Yeah, I was. I've been a meditator since I was a kid. You know, because of the martial arts thing, I was yeah. to be a ninja. Yeah. I would always watch. I was watching ninja movies, and these ninjas would just sit in like silence, and I always did mm-hmm. that. I was like, "Ooh, ninja, sit in silence." And I, <laughs> yeah, and I, <laughs> yeah, and I liked it. Yeah. So um, yeah, when I feel that imbalance mm-hmm. I I really just sit and breathe and meditate and and it definitely gets me back what would your biggest piece of advice be for someone who's also going through like a similar situation 
Um, my biggest piece of advice would be A, you're not alone. You're not alone. You're actually the opposite of alone. There are a lot of people who are there for you. Mm-hmm. And I would say, even if you don't think you're in that position, reach out. Like, reach out to somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you feel like, oh, that's not me, I don't need that, I'm just, you know, a little bit gloomy right now, you're in it. Yeah. You're <laughs> in it. And I would say to the people who are close to that person, reach out to them. Don't wait. You know, don't wait. If you feel as if this person that you care about is in depression, reach out. And don't go, look, man, you're depressed. <laughs> it's not a good, it's not a good way to approach it. Yeah. Just reach out to them, sit with them, and just listen to them. Just listen. And don't judge, and don't talk. And don't say if it was me or that, yeah, you know, enough of all of that. Just listen to them. That's all they need. They just need somebody to listen. How's the uh, the one man show coming? How's that process been like? You know, it's really good. It's really good. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's gonna be on stage by next summer for sure. Um, Amazing. And I have I have some of the best human beings um, in my life and I have to say that I have been extremely fortunate to have worked with and befriended some fantastic empathetic way smarter than me human beings that I could call on and ask Mm -hmm. for help and they come and I, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I, I, I just did a reading last night for a bunch of very close friends who um, I trust and mm-hmm. who will be honest and tear me apart. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. And that's and that's why I did it for them. And I was nervous and I was, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was afraid of what they were going to think of me and all of that stuff. And I did the reading and they um they gave me some some of the best you know honest feedback i've ever had in anything i've done and you know i i really i i really am a fortunate person to be here and and to be able to tell this story and to be be able to share it with um those people who lived with me through that experience and are able to take this on um and and be humble enough to share their professional opinions with me um and help me get better help me really get better so it's it's been such a wonderful experience writing it it's the hardest thing i've ever done it doesn't get easy that sounds difficult it doesn't get easier (laughs) it doesn't yeah (laughs) telling the story is hard like it's really, yeah. really hard. Um, but I, I'm just—I really have to say—in my life, and it's taken me, you know, 25 years to be able to say this. I am a very fortunate person to have 
the people in my life that mm-hmm. I have. Mm-hmm. And I'm not taking that for granted at all. And if it wasn't mm-hmm. for me going through what I went through with uh, the prequels, I wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to really see how fortunate I am now. Do you find when you're writing it that you start to fall back to that place emotionally? Uh, you know, I can still fe- I can still feel what it feels like, mm-hmm. and, and I think as an actor and as an artist, we're we're all vulnerable. You know, I mean, I think yeah. that's when our best stuff comes out when we get to be vulnerable. Yeah. But because I've come through it, mm-hmm. recognizing the story helps me recognize the fact that I'm not in that place anymore. Good. And so I can tell this story and it be healthy, you know? Yeah. And it doesn't drive me into a, a, a pit of despair. It actually makes me realize how fortunate I am. Good. That's really good. That's fantastic. Um, I'm excited to see it. I assume you're going to be doing it in New York sometime. Oh, yeah. Hopefully. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's my goal. I want to get it on stage in New York City and, you know, come back to my old stomping Mm -hmm. grounds. You know, I started doing theater in New York 30 years ago and I I miss it and I'm coming back. I'm coming back with a vengeance. Good. Yeah, thank you again for doing this. 